Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible together now. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to Romans 9. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. If you don't have one, that's fine. We've got the, the passage on the screen for you. Let's read Romans 9 and the first 13 verses. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms, confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, wish, for, I, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, for those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has, fa- has failed or had failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had, any, had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. Yeah, we're good. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm the lovely bloke that Ryan was talking about. And if you want to give any more compliments to me uh, like that, I encourage it. (laughs) We're going to look at this passage today, uh, but before we do, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have this morning to gather. Um, Lord, we thank you that we can be face-to-face this morning and open up your word. Lord, we pray that wherever we're at, whatever kind of week we've had, Um, or month we've had, however we've gotten here, Lord, that you would um, speak to us now, that you would challenge us if we need challenging, comfort us if we need comforting. And we pray, Lord, that whatever happens this morning, that we would meet with the living God and walk out different people because of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there um, there was a moment growing up for me when I questioned my parents' love for me. I was about 10 years old, and I went on a family camping trip. And while I was gone on this family camping trip, my parents said to me that they were going to paint my room. So I went away for a week and uh, came back excited that I would have this new room. 
I was excited by all the different things that I'd be able to do in this new room because of the new colors and all of that sort of stuff. And so I walked in excitedly upstairs, but when I got to my room, what confronted me was the worst thing ever. They painted my room green. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but for me, as a 10-year-old boy, this was the worst thing ever because I hated green. Now, I'm pretty confident I never told anyone that, but if my parents loved me, they would have known that I hated the color green. So I lost it. I, like, tears, screaming. I ran outside. I remember looking up to the heavens. God, why? If my parents loved me, they would have painted it a different color. Now, um, I, reflecting on that and reflecting on the difficulty of parenting over the last four months, I have a newfound respect for my parents because that is some next-level stuff, right, from 10-year-old me. But that line, if you loved me, you would have done it differently, that's not just a line we hear from 10-year-olds, is it? We've often heard that in other friendships and relationships, in families, we hear that, and sometimes we even hear that line to God. If God loves me, if God is a God who is loving, then why doesn't he do things differently? You know, we hear it about all sorts of different things, but one of the most common ones that I hear, the most common kind of objections to Christianity is this. If God was loving, why doesn't he save everyone? If God was really a God of love, why doesn't he just rescue everyone? You know, I wonder if you've heard that. It's worth kind of thinking about and asking that question because if we reflect on it, where we find ourselves in the book of Romans, we've just been seeing God's love, right? If you can throw your mind back to Romans 8, it was all about how loving God is and how good his love is. But if God is so loving, why, why doesn't he save everyone? Why doesn't he rescue everyone? Why doesn't he bring everyone into the family, into the story, into his story? If God is loving, why doesn't he save everyone? Well, we're going to go on this journey today. And we're going to go on this journey with Paul. He goes on this journey as well. And if you're someone who needs structure, we're going to see four things, four God doesn'ts in this journey. And it begins with the fact that God doesn't save everyone. That's where Paul begins on this journey. Now, I wish I could get up here today and say that God does. It would be much easier to do that. It would be nicer to do that. I wouldn't have to push into the sadness of this fact but throughout the Bible, we see this God doesn't save everyone. And Paul reflects on this. In verse 1 to 5, we see him expressing the sorrow of the fact that God doesn't save everyone. You notice this. He says it there. He has unceasing anguish and great sorrow because when he looks around at his nation, in verse 2, when he looks around at his nation, people haven't been saved. Paul's heart is broken over the fact that God doesn't save everyone. It should break us. This truth, it's, it's consistent throughout the Bible. It's true. That doesn't mean it's not sad. It is sad. And when Paul thinks about it, he is broken by it. He says, unceasing anguish, great sorrow. But as he thinks about it, he thinks about what God does and what God doesn't do, but he also says God hasn't failed. Right? When he looks back at salvation history, he's broken by this truth, but it's consistent with God's character. And we see this as we go back on the journey. So verse 6 to 9, we see him looking at this. When he reflects back on the Old Testament, he reflects on the fact that God hasn't saved everyone, and that's never been the case. And he goes back to this guy called Abraham. Now, if you're familiar with Abraham, it's a story from Genesis 11, kind of onwards for a few chapters in Genesis. And if you've been reading that story recently, what you'll know is that kind of out of nowhere, God picks and chooses Abraham. 
He just saves Abraham for kind of no reason. In fact, if you're reading it, you just see there's this random genealogy of Shem. Kind of goes down the line. There's nothing particularly special about any of them. And then you get to this guy, Abram, who's later on called Abraham. And there's nothing particularly special about him. In fact, if you know his story, right, he sleeps with his maidservant. Not a great guy. He nearly gets his wife married off to a foreign king. He's, there's nothing special about him, but there's something special that happens to him. What is it? God chooses him. God loves him. God picks him out of kind of nowhere, and he gives him this promise, and the promise is you're going to have a great family, and you're going to bless all the nations. Now, in verse 6 to 9, Paul's reflecting on this truth, and he's saying God hasn't failed here in the fact that Israel haven't been saved, but the family of Abraham is going to be the spiritual family that God's going to choose as well. Now, if it's implicit here that God doesn't save everyone with Abraham, it gets explicit with Jacob and Esau. Okay, so Abraham uh, has a baby, Isaac, and then Isaac has two babies, Jacob and Esau. We pick up the story and we see this explicitly, this fact from verse 10. It says this, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When Paul reflects on salvation history and the story of how God has worked in the past, he sees the truth here that God doesn't save everyone. And it's put pretty explicitly there, isn't it? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now this doesn't resolve it, but the love-hate thing there is less about emotions and more about actions. So Jacob, to love Jacob, it's to choose him, to bless him, to be with him. Jacob's name becomes Israel. He becomes a great nation. But Esau, God hates in the sense that he's going to reject Esau, not be with Esau, not bless Esau. Now, as Paul reflects on how God's worked in the past, he sees this truth, God doesn't save everyone. That's always how he's acted. It's consistent with the Old Testament. God doesn't save everyone. Cool? We're good to go home? <laughs> of course not. There's so many questions about that, right? So many questions that come up about this truth, about what we see here. Like, why? <laughs> I don't think that answers the first question either. Like, if God is loving, why doesn't he save everyone? Why doesn't God save everyone? Why is this the way that God has acted? And what about Jacob? Like, how do we get to be like Jacob and not Esau? And how is that fair? How is it fair that God saves some and not others? Well, we're going on this journey with Paul. And he's on this journey. And we see the second thing in this passage. The second God doesn't, God doesn't have to save anyone. That's where Paul goes. We pick this up from verse 14. He says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. If God doesn't save everyone, the second thing we see is God doesn't have to save anyone. And we see this here because mercy is a gift. Mercy is not conditional of justice, right? So God can be just and merciful at the same time. And if God didn't save anyone, he'd still be just. And we see that because throughout the book of Romans, we, we explored this last term. In, in Romans, we saw no one's good, no one's right. 
Before God, we all lack the glory of God. So if God gave us what we deserve, all of us, that would be perfectly good. God would be perfectly just and fine. That would be fine. He'd be just, he'd be good, he would remain as he does. But if he chooses to save some, it's a gift. It's mercy. And, and what he says here is this gift is reliant, dependent on his divine mind, wisdom, desire. It's based on his choice, not based on human effort. Now, it is a good thing it's not based on human effort, right? Because we kind of want to think that if it was based on human effort, that would be good because that speaks of our experience. But if it was based on human effort, none of us are saved. All of us are dead. So it is actually a good thing that God's mercy, whom he saves, is based on his desire and choice. And in God choosing to save some, he's giving this gift as an act of mercy, and he can still be just and perfect in he, as he does it. So it's kind of like this, two illustrations to help us understand this. The first one is the picture of an orphanage. So um, Elizabeth and I have watched Queen's Gambit recently on Netflix, and there's a scene in that that you're, you'd be familiar with even if you haven't seen the show, because it's the scene of an orphanage. And it's this picture, there's like 50 girls in this orphanage. And in the, in the show, you experience their pain and their sorrow. You experience what they go through. And it, it's sad, you know, to, to watch these girls as they struggle without parents. But then there's a scene where parents walk in and they choose to adopt the main character in the story. They choose to adopt this girl into their family. Now, whenever you see that in, a, in an orphanage, whenever you see parents going in to adopt a child, do you look at that and do you say it's loving or unloving? Right? We all look at that and go, well, that's a loving thing to do. Right? It's a loving thing to do that you would adopt one child. What about the 49 other girls in the orphanage? What about the other people who are sitting there? Is it unjust to only take one? Right? It's not, because... It's a gift. It's loving. And when we, look at that, when we look at that scene, we can see that. It's a loving thing to do just to take one because for the family, it's going to cost them. It's going to hurt. And it's their choice. It's their decision. Love and mercy is not a condition of justice. Or it's kind of in the similar vein. It's like this. Like if I give Elizabeth a present at Christmas time, my wife a present at Christmas time. No one looks at me giving her a present and says, Ben, you are, you are unloving. You are unjust for giving your wife a present. Because there's actually four billion other women on the planet that you should have given them a present to as well. How could you just give a present to your wife? Now, there's some correlation here. There's some correlation between this. See, God can show mercy to whoever he wants. That's the gift. And his mercy, if he chooses to save some, it's not conditional of his justice. God can still remain perfectly just as he shows his mercy and he chooses to save some. God doesn't have to save anyone. Now, I know in this passage it says God chooses to show mercy to some and chooses to harden others. So how do we understand the, the hardening aspect of that? Well, Paul goes back here to Pharaoh. And if you're familiar, this story of Pharaoh is from Exodus. Now, in Exodus, it's the uh, story of how God's people, Israel, right? So Abraham onwards, Israel, they get in slavery. And Moses comes along and says, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Now, when you read through the account in Exodus, there's a couple of different pictures going on in Exodus. Firstly, Pharaoh has a hard heart. Secondly, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And thirdly, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So what is it? Who's hardening whose heart in that situation? Well, the, the Bible says both. 
Pharaoh has a hard heart and God hardens his heart. Now, how does this unfold? How can these things be true? Well, Paul's actually explained this in Romans chapter 1. So if we go back and remember in Romans 1, there's this, there's this moment where Paul's explaining that there were people who exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped created things, not the creator. Now, does that not sound like Pharaoh? You know, people worshipping created things and not the creator. And what did we see God do in Romans 1? He handed them over to their desires. Now, if God hands someone over to their desires, the picture of that is hardening. God hardens their hearts. But notice here, God is not hardening soft hearts. It's not as if Pharaoh, if you read through the account, wanted to do what God was asking him to do. Pharaoh rejected God. He hated God. He thought he was God. And yet, God stepped back. God didn't step in. God hardened his heart. Now, in this way, what do we see? God can do whatever he wants. He had no obligation to save Pharaoh, no obligation to soften his heart. He could have hardened his heart. And God has no obligation to anyone else. God doesn't have to save anyone because mercy is not a condition of justice. God can save no one and still be just and still be perfectly good. God doesn't have to save anyone. Now again, lots of questions that come up from this. Right? Like again, well, why? <laughs> why is this the way that God works? And if, God is, if this is the way that God works, does he, how does he not, how are we still to blame in that moment? If this is how God works, then how come we're still held accountable? And maybe you have a bunch of other questions going on there. But as we keep reading, what do we see? We see the third thing, God doesn't have to answer to anyone. And we read this as we keep going from verse 19. Paul on this journey says this, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make, known his, make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then we see from verse 25 to 29, he says how this was the case in the Old Testament. The third thing that we see here is that God doesn't have to answer to anyone. And Paul says here, does the potter have to respond to the clay? Now, this image is so good, right? The, you know, I just picture this as us as busted up clay jars or whatever, speaking to the potter and saying, why did you make me like this? But we know how this works, practically speaking, in, in human relationships, because there are some relationships where there is a relationship dynamic where you have to respond. You know, so if you think of parents, children, right? If, you, if you're a child, you have to respond to the parent. And the parent asks you why you did stuff, because if you don't, then you're going to get in trouble. But uh, it doesn't have to go the other way around. Parents don't have to respond to their kids. You know, like we do, and a lot of the time we do, but sometimes we don't. You know, so if the question is, you know, why can't I eat chocolate for every meal, we respond, parents respond to that. Um, if the question is, why do I have to go to sleep at night, we, we respond to that. But what if a six-year-old comes home from grade one one day and says to their parents as they get home, you know, mum and dad, sit down, I've got something to ask you. Why did we go with a fixed home loan rate and not a variable home loan rate? 
Like there's some things parents answer. There are other things that just are beyond kids, right? And in that moment, it's like to the grade one person, bro, your life right now is just figuring out how to add and subtract. You're just trying to spell variable, let alone figure that out. Let's just get through a year without peeing your bed and then we'll start talking about some of this stuff, right? For, but for kids, you see the picture. For kids, there are some things that are just beyond them. And it's actually good for them not to know. It's actually good for them not to know, but to trust the one who does know. Now, here's the picture that we're giving. God doesn't have to answer to anyone because he's God, right? Like he is the creator. We are created. He is eternal. We are finite here today and gone tomorrow. We can barely figure our own lives out. God is over all things, over all time. God is over everything. And there are some things where we just won't ever know. There's some things that are kind of within the mystery of God, and it's actually good for us. It's good for us not to know. It's good for us, but, but it's not like we're not searching, not exploring, not asking, not thinking about, but in this space, it's good for us to just rest in the fact that there are some things that are beyond us, that are too high for us. God's ways are higher than us. Paul says when thinking about this sort of stuff, can you really talk back to the potter? Can you really speak like this? Some things are just beyond you that you, that you are okay not to know. God doesn't have to answer back to anyone. So first, God doesn't save everyone. Secondly, God doesn't have to save anyone. Thirdly, God doesn't answer back to anyone. But then we see the tone shift in this passage. And the tone shifts, and the fourth thing we see in this passage is the final thing, God doesn't leave us in complete confusion. You see, in verse 30, we begin to see there's some things God hasn't revealed to us, and there's some things He has. He hasn't told us the why of salvation, but He tells us the how. And we see this from verse 30. It says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained the goal. Why not? It's because they pursued it not by faith, but if, as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The final thing we see in this passage is that God doesn't leave us in complete confusion. There's some things we don't know, but there's some things we do, and we know how people are saved. And they're saved by trusting in Jesus, by faith. You see, the Israelites, they missed the mark because they thought that they could enter into the family of God by works. It was what they did that got them in. And then when Jesus came along the stumbling stone, they stumbled over him, they rejected him and killed him. But the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, were brought into the family. Why? Because they trusted in Jesus. They didn't stumble over him, they believed in him, the one who died and rose again. God makes it really clear to us how we are saved, and it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're saved by trusting in Him and trusting in Him alone. God doesn't leave us in complete confusion. He does tell us how people are saved. Now, as we get to the end of the passage, it is worth asking, okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Because there's a lot going on here, and it's worth figuring that out. What do we do? Do we just resolve and go, okay, well, there's nothing you know, that we can really know, so let's do nothing. What, what do we do with this? Because this should change us. And I think that this passage gives us three things. Permission to do three things. 
as we see these truths about God, three things. So firstly, this passage gives us permission to grieve. When you see the truth throughout the Bible that God doesn't save everyone, it's true, but it's heartbreaking. And when Paul reflects on this, he is broken by it. And we see that this is in line too with God. He delights in no one perishing. If we're feeling that, we have permission to feel that. It's okay to grieve over this truth. And if we're feeling that, know that the God that was with Paul is the God who's with us. And he sees you, and he loves you, and he will never leave you. In your grief, God is right there. We have a high priest who can sympathize with you. Jesus knows. This passage gives us permission to grieve. The second thing, though, this passage gives us is permission to rest in the mystery. To rest in the fact that we don't know. You know, I know that we live in the online, uh, in the internet age, where, I don't know if you've seen this, but online people will tell you to test everything and know everything. The idea that you have to know everything is exhausting. Not only is it, is it exhausting, it's just not true, right? You don't know everything. You don't test everything. People don't test the car they drive in the morning. You didn't test the chair you sat on today. That's not even true. But this idea that you've got to know everything is exhausting. This passage is giving us permission to not know and to rest in that. You know, there's some things about God that we won't know. There's some things we just will never know. We can explore, we should explore, we should ask, we should research, we should think about it. But at the end of the day, the why, why God works like he does, the way that his mind works, we will never know that. And it's okay. We can rest in that. We can rest in the fact that we don't know everything, but we know the one who does know everything. You know how good is that? That we actually can rest in the fact that God knows everything. And the mystery of salvation, God, is all over. And we can get on with doing what we've got to do. Second thing we have permission is permission not to know, to rest in the mystery. And then the final thing this passage gives us is a permission to come home. You see, we can, and we have a decision, are we going to focus on what we don't know or what we do know? And this passage tells us what we know, tells us very clearly how people are saved. And when we read through Romans 9, we're not meant to ask this question, am I, you know, am I elected, getting caught up in that, am I chosen, am I called? The, the decision we're meant to, the question we're meant to ask is simply, am I going to come home? Am I going to trust in Jesus? Now, Ryan referred to the prodigal son before, and it's a really helpful image of how we know what to do with something like this. So he said before, which is true, the prodigal son is actually a story of two sons, both were lost. So you've got the younger son. We reflected on this last term. The younger son leaves his father. Remember, he, he basically said he wanted his father dead, took his money, spent it up on sex and the good life, and ended up in the mud begging to go home. And we reflected how beautiful it is that the father's love for the son, he runs out to meet him. And last term, extensively, we looked at how good it is that God has a heart for the broken, the lost, and he runs to greet them. But there's a second son in the story. And he's also lost. And this older son was the son that stayed home when the, when the younger son took all his money away. 
And when he's, he's out in the field and when he hears about the younger son going away and then the father reacting and coming back and throwing him a party, man, that older son gets angry. He gets so angry about it. He gets fired up. How could you possibly love that younger son? How could you throw a party for that younger son? But the twist in the story is that the father goes out to greet him as well. He goes out to greet him as well and he begs him to come back home. But the younger son, the older son gets even angrier, fires up even more. And as you read this account, you begin to see that the, the older son's essentially saying, it's unfair. It's unfair that you save the younger son. It's unjust. It's not right that you would save him. The, the older son essentially is getting caught up in the mystery. How could you possibly do this as a father? How could you love that person? How could you throw a party for that person? But the father says, man, we had to celebrate that. We had to. He was lost, but now he's found. And you're left in the story wondering what happens next. But it just finishes. Jesus' account of this story just finishes. We don't know what happens. But it finishes like that for a reason. And the reason is, is because it's actually asking us this question. Are you going to get caught up in the mystery? Or are you just going to come home? The Father pleads for us to come home. You see, we're not meant to ask, am I elected, chosen, called? How do I understand the mystery? We're just meant to answer this question. Will we come home? Will we trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and come back to the Father? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while there are things that we don't know, there are things that you are all over. And God, there is great rest in knowing this. Father, thank you that you have decided to save some and that your gift of mercy is on offer. Lord, we pray that as we consider this and wrestle with this and think about this, that at the end of the day, we would just answer this question, will we come home? Will we come back to the Father because of the Son, because of what Jesus did at the cross? Help us, Lord, as we wade through this. Give us grace, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.